Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is my colleague and friend, Steve Malanga. Steve is our senior editor at City Journal and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. We've invited him to come on the show today to discuss his new essay, The Bill Comes Due, which details New York City's budget dilemmas and the fiscal challenges facing its next mayor. Uh, Steve's essay is featured in our new special issue called New York City Reborn, which we've just released. The issue includes essays by longtime City Journal writers and others on how New York City can regain order and prosperity as it rebuilds following the COVID-19 pandemic. You can find the issue and request print copy on our website. Thanks very much for joining us, as always, Steve. My pleasure. Um, you, you write in this essay that uh, Mayor de Blasio, from the time he took office in 2013, through the formation of his actual 2020 budget, boosted city spending by $25 billion. This is a very significant 34% growth rate. He added uh, something on the order of 30,000 full-time positions to the city staff. This was the largest increase in uh, municipal workers in 40 years. New York City provides its employees, of course, generous pensions and fringe benefits. And the mayor's concessions to unions, as you note, including retroactive pay increases, have boosted the city's personnel costs by billions. Uh, So could you describe some of the policies that have contributed to the city's bloated payroll and, you know, offer your take on how these personnel costs could start being pared back? Yeah, so, I mean, it, it basically falls into two categories, giving those who work for the city more and, and making more of them, hiring more of them. There was a, an unprecedented, really, expansion of the city workforce uh, by about 30,000 full-time workers. That, that was about an 11% increase. We haven't seen anything like that since back in the days in the aftermath of the fiscal crisis of the 1970s, when the city had been forced to cut its workforce, uh, uh, you know, really cut to the bone. We had gone down to only 200,000 workers in the city at that time. And afterwards, when the city recovered, it was allowed, of course, to, to, to finally build back up, especially its police force. And it's, it's uh, you know, the fire department, too, both of which had been cut back dramatically. But de Blasio, uh, you know, uh, came in and at a time when the city's force was already at a, a significant high, he added 30,000 workers. Um, if you consider that the cost, the average cost of employing um, a city worker, now not, not high-end city workers, but the average city worker, it costs about $151,000 counting salaries and benefits. That's what the average worker costs. Those are enormous costs just expanding the size of the workforce that much. Now, some of that came because of individual programs. He had a lot of programs that were somewhat controversial and remain controversial. Certainly his mental health initiative is one of those that's been highly criticized by people within the city council, for instance, because spent an awful lot of money. But in addition to that, there seems to be very little payback. And anyone who wants to understand in great detail why that's the case should read the City Journal articles. Uh, that we've published on, on the uh, on the program, but but there were thousands of workers added to some departments there. The other big area, of course, was the Board of Education and especially pre-K. The mayor started off with the idea that we wanted to have free pre-K 
for um, kids, lower income kids at, uh, uh, who were four years old. And he started with that. It's somewhat controversial. Kay Heimowitz has written uh, extensively about how there have been studies of pre-K going back all the way to the, uh, really to the 1970s, showing that the payoff in terms of educational achievement is, is very, very small, if anything at all. But beyond that, he started that modestly, but then expanded it to kind of universal pre-K uh, and, and then down into, into uh, three-year-olds. And he even argued that it, uh, for the sake of equity, a word that's thrown around a lot these days, we had to expand the program, not just to lower income kids, but to middle class kids, because it was a matter of equity now. I mean, this is a kind of perversion of the word equity. Just imagine if every program we have for the poor now, every social program has to be expanded to the middle class for the it sake of equity. It becomes a universal entitlement. Exactly. So, uh, but what that did was it created this huge jump in, in the workforce. Uh, <clears throat> at the same time, uh, you know, we talk about giving those workers that were already working more. He did something else that was unprecedented. In Bloomberg's final term, uh, the, the, uh, he had tried to negotiate significant givebacks from the city unions, particularly on health care, uh, because uh, they have, their health care is not only premium compared to those in the private sector, including those working at Fortune 500 companies in the private sector, but it's even at a premium to those working at other cities and in state government in New York. They pay, the city employees pay virtually nothing. And we also offer the, almost that same exact deal to retirees. So it's if we're play, paying for two, two workforces in the most expensive way possible for healthcare. Bloomberg had tried to get that back. Uh, the employees, uh, the unions had balked at, at and therefore did not even sign a contract. They decided that they would outlast Bloomberg, hoping that they could get somebody better uh, in, the, in the next election. And they hit the jackpot. What, what de Blasio did was he not only didn't ask for these givebacks, but instead he gave them retroactive pay increases for the Bloomberg years. So for much of the the uh, the, um, the Blasio's eight years in office, we've actually been paying workers like bonuses and raises for work they did during the Bloomberg years. Um, that's kind of the definition, of course, of inefficient government, and it's not something yeah. that 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 anyone does regularly. And in fact, it's so expensive that even in the pandemic year, we were scheduled to make the city was scheduled to make a nine hundred million dollar payment to teachers, again, at, because of this retroactive pay, these, which these payments have been stretched out over eight years, um, the, the union was kind to the city. They said, well, we'll only take half this year and you'll have to pay to half the next year. But this is how long this has gone on for. So these, these areas in particular vastly increase the spending. And more so than increase the spending, what they did was they increased what we call the baseline of the budget meaning the next mayor who comes in has to deal with all of this. It's not like these were one-time expenditures that disappear. These are people who work for the city now. These are uh, uh, benefits and pay levels that are in contracts right now. So the next mayor will face this. And uh, that's part of the challenge that I say in my piece which is really about the, the fiscal challenge that the next mayor is going to face, that, that face, that's part of the challenge. Now, there's a considerable amount of money in the uh, stimulus, the new federal stimulus bill that will be sent to state and cities across states and cities across the country, including New York City. Um, 
in effect, a kind of uh, a bailout of of the city's current situation. Um, I think New, New York City is facing uh, five billion or five point two five billion dollar budget deficit this year. How is that going to be uh, affected by the uh, stimulus? Yes. So first of all, I would call a, a generous amount of money an understatement. Uh, uh, it, you know, people have called this a bailout for dysfunctional governments or in states and cities around America because um, everybody's getting, you know, a nice little piece. Um, but it's particularly uh, helpful to places that uh, were in trouble not principally because of the pandemic. There's no denying that the pandemic has created extraordinary expenses. But we've seen around the country that the economy has has bounced back so fast that in many places, California, for instance, they're actually running budget surpluses now, even without the Biden money. The larger issue is that there are places like New York that had spent so much that they were just incapable of, of absorbing even a, a short time hit to their to their revenues. So the Biden what the Biden money does is it basically says that uh, it allows de Blasio to not have to cut much his final year in office. What happens is he right now is crafting a budget which goes into effect on July 1st and he, you know it's uh, the new mayor takes all over next January and a half of the year, this first half of year is actually de Blasio's budget. Um, but de Blasio is allowed. He doesn't have to really cut any more in the middle of this fiscal year. And he can create a budget next year that doesn't, uh, that isn't under a lot of pressure. But if you look at the accumulated deficits that are projected by the city itself and by some of the fiscal monitors of the city, they're talking about as much as 13 to 14 billion dollars in deficits in the next 3 to 4 years. Now again, the Biden stimulus money is not continuing money, although I would imagine that Biden would try to continue it and the Democratic Congress might look for ways to continue it. Uh, but they'll probably at some point run out of good excuses for why they should be sending this much money uh, 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 to the states and cities. So it's because it's not continuous money, because it's one-time money, the accumulated deficits that people are projecting in the next couple of years far outstrip the money that the city is actually going to get. So at some point in the next mayor's term, he's going to face, I think, uh, uh, perhaps a significant budget challenge. A lot of what, what he faces will depend on to what extent the city's economy rebounds. Um, even even with an economy getting back to where it was heading before the pandemic, people were already projecting, and even the De Blasio was saying, "Well, we we're going to have a, we're going to have a problem here in 2020, uh, and we have to deal with that." Um, then the pandemic came along, and the problems became much worse. If the city's economy and there's a lot of uncertainty here doesn't bounce back even to the pre-pandemic levels. And there are reasons to think that might be the case, including remote work and these lawsuits that are going on from other states saying, you know, you're, you, you have to stop taxing our workers like in New Jersey and Connecticut uh, 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 because, you know, they're no longer working uh, in, your, in your city. They're working remotely anymore. Because of things like that, the next mayor could, make, could face significant budget problems, which were exacerbated by the fact that de Blasio increased the budget so much.
Now, de Blasio and uh, some of his allies have uh, proposed t uh, hiking taxes on wealthier residents in the cities, the city, uh, to, you know, bring in revenue. Uh, but as you know, New York already is one of the most heavily taxed big cities in the U.S., not the most heavily taxed. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what's your view on uh, the likelihood of a tax rate increase and how that would affect uh, the city's budget, uh, the city's uh, population? Um, would it would it indeed bring in more revenue? Well, first of all, perversely, one of the one of the good outcomes of the Biden stimulus is I think that it it mutes some of that discussion, even though there are a lot of, of far left progressives, both in the New York state legislature and in New York City Council, who would like to tax anyway, just because it's fun. I don't think they think of any other, you know, uh, I think that the Biden stimulus has somewhat muted that discussion. Um, the Manhattan Institute did a survey of New York City residents back in August and September, asking them about uh, the condition of the city, asking them about uh, what what they thought were some of the best ways to get the city to get the city back on track. And Manhattan residents, who are hardly the most conservative voters in the world by any means, said by, by an overwhelming amount that they already pay much more in taxes than they get in services. And a significant percentage of those we uh, surveyed said they were thinking of leaving New York for a whole host of reasons, many of them actually having to do with the pandemic. But regardless of what reason people are saying they are thinking of leaving the city, even if it's not specifically for taxes, when you have a large part of the population saying that they're overtaxed relative to the um, benefits they think they're getting already, um, then, then taxing them only exacerbates, you know, potential uh, uh, exodus of people from New York that we're we're very much watching closely because we just don't know how this is going to pay play out. And um, we do know that during the pandemic, many many people left the city. People with a wherewithal left the city, and some of them are not coming back. We um, we've gone through two uh, previous recent crises in the city. 9-11, and then the financial crisis. Uh, how does the current situation post-pandemic, um, you know, compare with those those two earlier uh, catastrophes that struck New York? Well, you know, one of the things I would say is that the pandemic is unprecedented because, um, you know, it does create something that, you know, but people were talking about months ago and they've stopped talking about it now, but it's still out there. And that's the kind of the V-shaped recovery. The thing is that the recovery from 2008, which was a very deep financial driven recession, financial services driven recession, and even the recovery from 2002, which there were two things going on. Of course, you had 9-11, but you also had this nationwide um, uh, uh economic uh, decline and stock market decline that was driven by different factors, including the meltdown of NASDAQ and technology stocks, st uh, stocks in 2000 and 2001. In retrospect, of course, the city actually recovered from 9-11 from far quicker than people thought it was going to, considering you know, all of these uncertainties about New York City as a target city. Um, the recovery from from 2008 was aided by the fact 
that the federal government, though they didn't send a lot of money uh, in stimulus money to cities and states after that, uh, you know, they did send $800 billion to financial services firms, many of which were located in New York City. So that, um, you know, what essentially what happened is while a place like Detroit saw its, you know, General Motors just collapse in the wake of 2008, we had a couple of, uh, of uh, Wall Street firms like uh, obviously Lehman Brothers collapse, but the rest of the firms actually picked up the slack, if you will. And also the city under under Bloomberg did, you know, really tighten spending at that particular point and, and focused on, you know, making the city more efficient. Um, so but this is so different. It's, it's just so hard to predict. The economy around the country is is already rapidly recovering and more importantly tax revenues are recovering now this is crucial after 2008 we had a very slow recovery of state and local tax revenues um it's so that it actually took states and cities to about 2016 on a um, inflation adjusted scale to get back to where they were in 2007 and 2008 before the crash Right now, we're seeing states around the country already reporting, not just far beyond what their expectations were, but but getting back to where they were before the pandemic. Um, but for New York City, the 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 comparison is just it's completely different because it was the center of the pandemic. The real issue is whether all of those office jobs will come back, and the city officially has a fifteen percent vacancy rate right now. But that means 85% uh, uh, 85% occupied rate. And yet everybody knows that there aren't 85% of the people who are supposed to be working in office towers in New York actually in those office towers. They're still working remotely. So the city is, I think, um, uniquely um, vulnerable because of the kind of office market it is, the kind of density uh, it has, the, its reliance on its mass transit system, and and. And so it's hard to compare at this point. Needless to say, caution and pro-growth strategies, caution in spending and pro-growth, pro-development strategy, pro-economic development strategies are the things that are in order right now. But uh, this is New York City we're talking about. And the leadership there does, doesn't always act as if New York is one of the financial capitals of the world, which, of course, it is. Well, that's a, that leads to a final question. We've got a mayoral race coming up, and uh, um, any number of candidates have uh, thrown their hat into the ring. Um, what advice would you give the uh, the next mayor of New York City to confront this situation? And uh, you know, what what might be the single best measure that that next mayor could take to bring the city's uh, economy back to where it was? So first of all, the mayor has far more control over the budget itself, even than he has over the economy. Not that mayors can't do damage to the economy. They certainly can by their long-range policies. But the real issue, perhaps, is is keeping the city government effective and efficient while at, at the same time being able to deal with any shortfalls in revenue that might, you know, <clears throat> that might cause, uh, uh, you know, a budget crunch or a budget crash. Um, th- this is not something that's being discussed during the election. As you can imagine, the election is largely about the pandemic and how the city reacted. This, this, this is what the campaign debates are about. But inevitably, people always forget 
in, in New York City elections in, in particular, they always forget that the number one task of a mayor is the budget. The budget controls everything. You know, that's that's what the mayor is. That's what the mayor does in New York City, uh, and <clears throat> so there are. The, I guess the good news is that De Blasio expanded, uh, you know, uh, spending so much and so cavalierly that there's a lot of rooms for cuts. There are a couple of things. Um, number one, you have to begin through attrition, meaning not hiring people to get the city workforce down to a more manageable level. You do that partially through attrition. You also do that by looking at the programs he expanded that have been highly criticized and not effective, like the mental health program, like the continued layer after layer expansion of the um, pre-K program. And you look at which of those can be pared back. So you, but you have to cut back the workforce. The workforce is expensive, not just now, but it's expensive in the future because retirement benefits are so expensive that once you get people into this workforce and they become you know, they become part of the retirement system. Uh, they are very, they are very expensive uh, um, to accommodate. So, so that's number one. Uh, <clears throat> number two is you have to look at the benefits. There's a tremendous amount of room. Any number of people have studied this, including the Manhattan Institute. There's a tremendous amount of room to save money merely by doing what the state is doing with its workers and what other cities, big cities like Boston, Chicago, um, Washington, Los Angeles are doing with their workers, having them, first of all, contribute more to, again, they contribute virtually nothing. So to, to their own health care, uh, having retirees, we, what we even do in New York is once you you qualify for Medicare, uh, as a city worker, retired city worker, you know, everybody in America who gets Medicare, you have to pay premiums. They're very modest, but you have to pay premiums for Medicare B, it's called. Um, it's just a couple of thousand dollars a year, but we even pay the premiums for, for the Medicare B uh, of, of retirees, which is just something that, that you don't see in the private sector or in much of government. So just having workers contribute 10%, uh, you know, towards their, uh, their healthcare costs and, and making retirees pay for that Medicare premium themselves, or even pay just half of it, Right. Uh, would save hundreds of millions of dollars. We're spending $2.5 billion a year on health care just for retirees, just for people who aren't even working in the city anymore. And, and none of that is, it, it, you know, none of that is typical. So there's a lot of saving there. There's also sa a, a savings in the pension system, which, which uh, um, remains among the most generous uh, and expensive in the country. And the Manhattan Institute actually produced a paper in the fall, which you can find on our website about many different ways to save money there. Among other things, uh, we know, because the Manhattan Institute itself has done surveys of city workers, for instance, teachers, in which as many as 30 to 40% of teachers said if there were a defined contribution option, a meaning, of course, not a defined benefit, but a, but, a, but, a, but a savings account where the city puts in a certain amount of money and the, and the worker puts in a, set, a certain amount of money. About 30 or 40 percent of teachers said they would choose that option because it's portable and it has certain advantages, most, most especially just the idea that if you're not committed to working for the city for the rest of your life, you can take that money with you. Whereas if you're in a defined benefit plan, like the one the city uses, 
you only really benefit if you stay for 30 years. Otherwise, it's a lousy deal. Um, so these are all things which would actually create savings uh, uh, and by giving workers choice. And ironically, the unions don't want us to give workers choices because they want the most expensive plan and they want to make sure the most expensive plan is in place. You know, it's a little bit like the same thing with the battle against school choice. They don't want those choices out there. So those are some things you could do. Uh, the other thing you, you could and should do is one of the things de Blasio eliminated was something called the program to eliminate. Uh, the, the gap or the budget deficit. It's called, it was called PEG. Four different mayors going all the way back to Koch had used this program. And basically what this program does is it requires city agencies every year to put out plans for how they're going to be more efficient and save money. Some of the money savings are really small, like, you know, on food items and stuff like that. But they, when you do it every year, it accumulates. And, and, and over the years, it saves billions of billions of dollars. Really very much... In, in his kind of mode as a progressive who thinks big government is fine, he eliminated this program uh, uh, for, for any number of years and, and just said to city agencies, well, if you can find some savings, you know, find them. And that sa- the actual savings that were recorded, many of, the, many of them were not really even savings. They were just kind of budget gimmicks. But beyond that, they f- fell far beyond the kind of money that, like, for instance, the Bloomberg administration and the Giuliani administration would save through the program to eliminate the deficit. Now, that, <clears throat> that program was finally brought back under pressure in the last year or so by, Bloomberg, by uh, de Blasio, but it's not really saving much. So that's something else that the next mayor needs. That tradition has to be put back in, off- in office. Finally, I would say, New York state law makes it very hard to, for, to, to enact some kinds of savings, uh, particularly personnel savings, other than firing people, which you can always do, but that's a, it's a kind of brute way of saving money. New York City's uh, state's uh, laws make it difficult to save money because it gives, it gives unions the advantage in contract negotiations for a whole bunch of reasons, which is probably the subject of another <laughs> podcast at some point. Because of that, though, there is one way out, and certainly given the pandemic and the situation that created, it's something the next mayor should consider. There is a financial control board, which was instituted in the 1970s in order to essentially oversee New York City's uh, budget because of the crisis in the 70s. Um, A mayor does have the option of asking the governor of New York State to institute that board, in other words, bring the board back it's, it's already exists, but bring it back into active control of New York City. And that board does have the ability to abrogate contracts and to impose settlements. And so I would say if there really emerges a crisis in the next administration because the city does not bounce back, I think I would advise the next mayor to consider invoking that board and getting some of these changes that the unions have been able to resist because New York State law basically makes it hard to reform uh, and reduce any kind of benefit once you've given it in a place like New York City. I would suggest the new mayor consider uh, invoking the Financial Control Board. Thanks, Steve, very much uh, for the illuminating discussion and for joining us today on the podcast. Don't forget to check out Steve Malanga's essay. It's called The Bill Comes Due. It's in our special issue, New York City Reborn, which you can find on our website, and we'll link to it in the description. You can follow City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. 
And as always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please give us uh, ratings on iTunes. So thanks for listening, and thanks, Steve, again for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.